Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 5th of October for the listening week that begins the 7th. And your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Beginning, as I often do, with articles from TheRoot.com on current events. This one was posted September 29th, written by Jessica Washington. The United Nations calls out racist U.S. criminal justice system. United Nations report finds a critical need to reform the United States' racist criminal justice system. The abject cruelty and racism within the criminal justice system in the United States has been well documented, but a new report from the United Nations' foremost human rights experts is shedding new light on the atrocities within our justice system for all of the world to see. The report found that racism and the legacy of slavery persist within our modern criminal justice system. Experts who met with 133, quote, affected individuals in cities throughout the country noted that black children were subjected to life imprisonment, pregnant women were chained during childbirth, and people were subjected to forced labor in, quote, plantation-style prisons. Solitary confinement was another massive concern for investigators. Over the course of their trip, they found people who had spent 10 years isolated in solitary confinement, which the UN considers to be a form of psychological torture. In all the cities we went to, we heard dozens of heartbreaking testimonies on how victims do not get justice or redress. This is not new, and it's unacceptable said Tracy Kesey, one of the UN experts. The report was also deeply concerned about policing within the United States, noting that despite 1,000 cases of police killing people each year, only 1% of these cases result in charges for the officer. The report also noted the vast racial disparities when it came to public brutality. We reject the bad apple theory, There is strong evidence suggesting that the abusive behavior of some individual police officers is part of a broader and menacing pattern, said Juan Mendez, one of the UN experts. He went on, Law enforcement and criminal justice institutions in the United States share and reproduce values, attitudes, and stereotypes of U.S. society and institutions. These must be reformed. Mendez and other experts stressed the need for reforms. The testimonies and figures we received represent the worst part of a racist criminal justice system that erodes all efforts towards addressing systemic racism, said Mendez. Our findings point to the critical need for comprehensive reform. Among those 30 recommended reforms, Mendez and his colleagues argued that Armed police officers should not be the default response to issues like mental health crises, homelessness, traffic, or school discipline. 
This isn't the first time the United Nations has called out the U.S. about its criminal justice system. But perhaps this time, someone in power is paying attention. Next one also written by Jessica Washington, posted on the 3rd. Kamala Harris swears in Laponza Butler, third black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate. In a historic moment, VP Kamala Harris swore in Senator LaPonza Butler on Tuesday. Here's everything you need to know. Vice President Kamala Harris swore in former Emily's List President LaFonza Butler on Tuesday in a touching moment for the two black women and political allies. Senator Butler is only the third black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate, and her appointment fills the vacancy left behind by Vice President Harris, whose ascendancy to the White House meant that there were no black women in the Senate. California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed Butler to fill the seat of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who passed away last week. For women and girls, for workers and unions, for struggling parents waiting for our leaders to bring opportunity back to their homes, for all of California, I'm ready to serve, Butler said in a statement to The Root. Who is LaFonza Butler? Butler will be the first openly LGBT person to represent California in the Senate and the only black woman to serve in the Senate since Kamala Harris. But who is the Golden State's newest senator, and how did she get there? It's worth noting that this Jackson State University graduate is a familiar face in the political arena. Butler is the first woman of color, mother, and HBCU graduate to run EMILY's List, a powerful political action group dedicated to electing Democratic women. She also happens to have the ear of the last black woman to serve in the Senate. She served as senior advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris during her run for the presidency. Unlike most of Congress, Butler got her start in labor organizing. At just 30 years old, she became the youngest president of California SEUI Local 2015, the largest labor union in California. Under her tenure at SEIU, the group pushed for significant legislative changes, including a $15 minimum wage, which the state recently adopted. How did we get here? Newsom's decision to appoint Butler didn't come completely out of left field. After Vice President Harris left her seat, Governor Newsom vowed to appoint a black woman to serve in the Senate if Feinstein did not complete her term. However, the appointment was not without some underlying controversy. Some critics have noted that Butler represented Uber in their 2019 labor dispute, calling into question her pro-labor bona fides. And last month, Newsom majorly stepped in it when he said that he would only appoint a black woman as a caretaker for the role. Black lawmakers, including Congressional Black Caucus Chair Stephen Horsford, Democrat Nevada, urged Newsom to appoint Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Democrat of California, who is currently running in the 2024 Senate primary race. However, the controversy with Newsom did not stop Representative Lee from congratulating the soon-to-be new senator. I wish LaFonza well and look forward to working closely with her to deliver for the people of the Golden State, said Lee in a statement with The Root. What happens next? 
Butler will serve in the Senate until January 2025. At that point, it's anyone's guess what happens next. Butler could potentially join the crowded field of Senate hopefuls, including Representative Lee and Representatives Katie Porter and Adam Schiff. However, as of now, she's made no indication that she plans to enter the political fray. Next one is written by Keith Reed, published on the 1st. If Tupac had lived, we can only imagine what he might have become in the 27 years it took cops to arrest one of his accused killers. Like most Gen Xers, I know exactly where I was when the news broke that Tupac Shakur had expired at Las Vegas' University Medical Center. To say the news broke is an exaggeration. As a college student, I was volunteering in a small office on the second floor of 145 Kennedy Street in Washington, D.C. Downstairs was the headquarters of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. Upstairs, a makeshift nerve center for the organizers of the Million Man March. A year after the march, its conveners were still working to channel its energy into a movement for accountability and improvement for black men. And, as part of that work, the Reverend Benjamin F. Chavez, himself a Sigma, was working behind the scenes to mediate rap beefs that had spilled onto the street. That's how it came to be that on that Friday evening, I was there when Chavez got a call that Pac had succumbed. I spent the rest of the night booking radio interviews for him while trying to process the silencing of one of our generation's prophets, a man who had seemed invincible until six days earlier. The arrest was coming. Friday's news of an arrest nearly 27 years later brought me, like many, back to where we were on that day in 1996. It also brought me to the consideration that where I was physically that day is a lot less important than where I was in life. I was 19 when Tupac died, an age at which the six years between his age, 25, at his passing and mine, seemed like it couldn't have been, pardon me, seemed like it could have been 20 years. I wasn't a father yet, hadn't gotten my first real job, financed a car, rented an apartment, caused or processed heartbreak. The 90s being the spectacularly violent decade that it was, I was intimate with death vis-a-vis the funerals of too many young black men I'd known. Nothing forces you to process death's finality like the passage of time. Three decades later, with grown sons, a life partner, having traveled the world and accumulated a life's worth of experiences, beyond what any of my dead friends could have imagined before their early passings. The enormity of the loss is finally in full view. When black men die young and over-bullshit like Tupac did, it makes all of us immeasurably poorer. That's the context that the jailing of 60-year-old Dwayne Keith D. Davis should hold. If you're old enough to remember September 1996, you're not about who was arrested, Hip-hop journalists and crime reporters got to the bottom of why Tupac died and who was involved damn near the day after he died. Davis had been a minor league YouTube celebrity largely by repeating 
pardon me, largely by repeatedly confessing his involvement in Tupac's death and other crimes for about the last five years. There are lots of people in jail over less than admitting out loud that they were in the car, touching the gun, and with the people who committed a fatal drive-by on one of the most famous people on earth. Who would Tupac be right now? But our fascination should be less about the dude in jail, who, having misspent the first five decades of life, might now be about to live the rest of it in a cell. Our collective thoughts should be of Pac and the memory of so many others like him who were taken out in the first quarter of a long game. At 19, I thought I was pretty smart, but at 46, I've lived long enough to know there's a lot more to being good at life than how great you think you are. Tupac would be 52 today. At 25, he was brilliant, but we never got to benefit from his genius being tempered by age maturity, trauma, love, loss, tragedy, and the changing of eras. Had he lived, what might he have reconsidered? Would hip-hop's bent toward commercialism and away from the gangsterism and militancy of his day have affected his writing, with so many of his contemporaries and followers in hip-hop having become wealthy moguls, would he have followed suit as an entrepreneur? Would he have been a mentor to younger artists, a father, a grandfather, a husband, a renouncer of misogyny in hip-hop who spoke out against rape culture, or none of the above? The shame of it, besides the fact that law enforcement ignored the obvious for nearly 30 years, is that all we can do is, pardon me, I'll just do that one again, the shame of it, besides the fact that law enforcement ignored the obvious for nearly 30 years, is that all we can do is imagine. Moving now to other news sources. This one comes from the Times Call, Longmont paper. NAACP Boulder County demands resignation of Redfern, Herald over Elijah McLean case. This one was written by Amber Carlson, published October 4th. The NAACP of Boulder County has formally called for Boulder Deputy Police Chief Stephen Redfern and Police Chief Maris Harold to resign in light of Redfern's, quote, involvement and testimony on the death of Elijah McLean, according to a statement. The statement reads, Chief Harold hired... Redfern, being aware of his previous tenure with the Aurora Police Department, his resignation from that department coinciding with the investigation of Elijah McLean's death, and while conveniently leaving that information out of any public online presence or bio of Redfern. Instead, Redfern has been lauded as the Boulder Police Department's liaison to the LGBTQ community and placed as second-in-command. Redfern, who came to the Boulder Police in September 2021, after more than two decades with the Aurora Police, testified last week in the trial of two Aurora Police officers charged in McLean's death of August 2019. CPR News reported that Redfern was a captain on duty on the night of McLean's encounter with the officers, and after receiving a call about the incident, he treated it as a, quote, critical incident, 
and updated the dispatch code from, quote, suspicious person to assault on an officer. According to CPR, Redfern admitted making those changes based on information from officers and without conducting his own investigation of the incident. Looking at body camera footage, or interviewing those who had been on scene. He said he changed the code in this way because one officer said McLean had tried to grab a gun and there was no dispatch code category for attempting to disarm an officer. In his position and with his extensive experience as an officer, it is incredulous that night duty police captain Redfern would not, at a minimum, have engaged in a cursory assessment of the scene of the incident prior to adjusting the call log read the NAACP statement. It went on, It reeks of a cover-up in which Redfern apparently found it unnecessary and irrelevant to question or investigate the report by the officers, thereby creating a pathway for the supposed justification, which was assault on a police officer, of the brutal murder of Elijah McClain. The statement went on to assert that Redfern has, quote, no business overseeing investigations in Boulder, and is clearly aligned with protecting police officers from accountability. Reached for comment, NAACP Boulder County President Annette James said, I think that Deputy Chief Redfern's actions are exactly why the community doesn't trust police. This is exactly why. This is the history of the discord between community and police. NAACP Boulder County Criminal Justice Chair Darren O'Connor said the organization's statement had been sent to city officials last week, and he found it frustrating to have received no response yet. In a statement on behalf of Redfern, Herald, and other city officials, city manager Nuria Rivera Vandermeide wrote that the NAACP Boulder County statement, quote, misrepresents the facts of what occurred. Rivera, Van, pardon me, Rivera Vandermeide noted that there have been no allegations of misconduct against Redfern in relation to the investigation of McLean's death, that his dispatch code change had no bearing on the investigation or outcome, and that it was standard protocol for him to change the code to reflect information from on-scene sergeants. Further, she wrote that the city had never attempted to hide that Redfern previously worked in Aurora, that he had retired from the Aurora Police Department in good standing, and that he was hired from a national search by an independent recruiter. Rivera Vandermeide wrote, The allegations shared with us from NAACP Boulder County are inaccurate and could damage the relationships that Chief Maris Harold and Deputy Chief Stephen Redfern have worked hard to build in this community. The city has complete confidence in Chief Harold and Deputy Chief Redfern, and I hope that reiterating the facts of the case will help clear up this misrepresentation. An Aurora PD spokesperson confirmed that Redfern worked for the agency from November 1999 to September 2020, pardon me, to September 2021 and had been a division chief at the time he left. However, the spokesperson said the agency could not comment further on Redfern's involvement in the McLean case due to the ongoing trial. Next article comes from CPR News, written by Rachel Estabrook, posted October 3rd. Colorado's black history and future go on display in a new, unlikely center of black culture, Boulder. 
since Deion Sanders, coach of the University of Colorado football team, came to town earlier this year. Boulder, with a population that's 90% white and only 1% black or African American, has improbably become a center of black culture. This weekend, it drew celebrities and athletes, as well as everyday people, who wanted to catch a piece of the Sanders-induced wave of empowerment and positivity. But the local conversation about what it means to be black in Boulder, and in Colorado generally, has been bubbling for a few years, and a new exhibit at the Museum of Boulder, called Proclaiming Colorado's Black History, gives the community and the state another chance to reflect on the past celebrate the accomplishments of those who have persevered, and create joy for the future. The exhibit opened September 29th, and the museum plans to have it on display for two years. It comes shortly after a documentary released in 2022 called This Is, parentheses, Not Who We Are, which explores the gap between Boulder's progressive self-image and the lived experience of its black citizens. And the opening of the university's new Center for African and African American Studies, which is meant, in part, to help build community. We wanted to talk about the black experience in Colorado from the earliest days when people of African heritage were in this area, and then bring it all the way up to the current times, said Adrian Miller, the lead curator of the new Museum of Boulder exhibit. It also looks to the future... The final part of the exhibit is an art gallery that asks visitors to consider what kind of ancestor will you be to future black Coloradans? Miller is conscious of the specific cultural moment that this exhibit is opening, pardon me, when this exhibit is opening, three years after massive protests for racial justice and amidst a celebration of black culture in Boulder centered around the football coach. Of the exhibit, Miller said, I'm hoping that it's a gateway for people to delve more deeply into Colorado's black history and then just understand the ways that we have felt so many barriers, obstacles, but we still manage to triumph. We're resilient and we assert our humanity. Miller added that the exhibit builds on other efforts around Colorado where people can learn about black history and think about the future. The Fort Garland Museum near Alamosa, which has a Buffalo Soldier exhibit, Vince Fort in rural southeastern Colorado is a place to learn about people who were enslaved in the region. The Pikes Peak Library District has a book called The Invisible People of the Pikes Peak Region. And in Denver, the Black American West Museum and the Blair Caldwell Library are both focused on stories of black Coloradans. Colorado Matters host Chandra Thomas Whitfield spoke with Miller who's best known as the Soul Food Scholar for his books on soul food culture. Minister Glenda Strong-Robinson of the Second Baptist Church, who collected oral histories for the exhibit, and is the Boulder County NAACP historian, and Adderler Grant Lord, an artist who is showing her work and curated the art for the exhibit. And I will read excerpts from that interview. First question, you've been planning this exhibit for two years, which means this project started in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the protests for racial justice that followed. Do you see this exhibit as part of a national reckoning, so to speak? Adrian Miller says, it is not surprising to black people, but what happened to George Floyd 
was a wake-up call to a lot of people. One thing that I've noticed is there's been sustained interest in racial justice. When that first happened, I thought it was going to be typical of what usually happens in this country. A couple of months of intense interest, and then we move on. And I don't think that's what's happened for a lot of people. People have been really interested in trying to grapple with these issues, not only systemically, but also in their own lives. The number of people that have taken the time to talk to black creatives, black social justice leaders, and racial justice leaders, and find out what we're thinking and what we would like to see. Reading books, trying to get into dialogue. I have been impressed and surprised that it's been sustained for this long. We still have a lot of work to do, but I think we still have a moment. And this exhibit, I think, is an extension of that moment. Next question. I understand that kids in Boulder Valley schools will get a curriculum on black history stemming from this exhibit. Miller said, yes, it was very important for us that this exhibit lived beyond the walls of the museum, so we got someone who could develop a curriculum with the Boulder Valley School District We want people to know their history, but we also wanted it to be a jumping-off point to understand contemporary issues and also to look to the future. It takes resources to do all of this, so we have a $250,000 goal, and we're about a third of the way there. We hope that as people learn about this exhibit and hear the stories and hear what we're trying to do, that they'll support what we're trying to accomplish in the schools. Even before we put the exhibit together, We spoke to young people and asked them what they would like to see. What did the kids suggest? They wanted to have something experiential, so we have two installations in the exhibit. One is Second Baptist Church, which is the only predominantly black church in northern Colorado. The second is an installation of Deerfield, which was an all-black agricultural colony, which speaks to the homesteading experience. A lot of people don't think of African Americans as homesteaders, and indeed, when the act was first passed at the federal level in 1862, African Americans were often denied the opportunity to homestead, but over time, those opportunities opened up. There were other all-black agricultural colonies in Colorado as well. The exhibit also talked about the life of the first black person known to be born in Colorado, Annabelle Riley. What do we know about her life? Miller said, we don't have a picture of her, but as far as the records indicate, she was born in 1864. Her father, Thomas, was one of the early black people to come to Colorado. He was brought here by a group of miners from Georgia, and then, in time, he was accomplished in his own right. We talk about how she and her family built community by being planted in a place, going to a black church, doing things to make a living, build community relate to other folks, and to try to have that American dream. Annabelle died young, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't hear a lot about her, but we wanted her to welcome you to the exhibit. What was it like to be black in Colorado then? It was a mixed experience, even though in Colorado there were never laws that made slavery legal or forced segregation People were doing it by practice. People took notions from the American South with them outside of the South and transplanted them all over the country. Media outlets were very happy to reprint things that were racist about black people in their newspapers. We also had lynchings here in Colorado. 
So this exhibit tells the story of Preston Porter, who was lynched in the early 1900s. Overall, sometimes black folks were left alone, and they were able to have self-determination and carve out a good life. But the situation of black folks here, like in so many different parts of the country, was that white people sought to limit the social, economic, and political opportunities for African Americans. What was the significance of Second Baptist Church for this community and for you, Minister? Minister Glenda Strong Robinson answers, Second Baptist Church was organized by nine forward-thinking people, five women and four men. The reason that's significant is that I'm the second woman minister on staff in our 115-year history. On January 7, 1908, they chartered and began service. It was the beloved community. It was how people got together and did life. And I feel fortunate and blessed to have been at Second Baptist. I moved here in 1980. We moved from Long Beach to Longmont. When I got here, I was pregnant, and I had a six-year-old daughter, and I looked around and I thought, God, are you anywhere? Where are the black people? I haven't seen any. That's when I met the Second Baptist Church at the former location on 19th and Canyon, and so I've been there 43 years. The exhibit includes artifacts from the church's former location and a video and soundtrack from a choir performance What does this collection mean to you? There were so many prominent families who were part of starting Second Baptist through the 1930s and 40s. There's so much history here. I feel it in my bones. I just love history. It's so important for us to know, if at all possible, where we came from, who our people are, and what legacy they left us. Because we are really walking in the footsteps of what they've laid out for us, and the prices that they've paid, so I'm so grateful for my foreparents. What do you make of this cultural moment in Boulder, especially with the attention given to Coach Deion Sanders and the CU football team? Still, Strong Robinson speaks. It feels like almost a magical moment. Everybody is looking down at what's happening on this field. It's a proud moment. I don't know, and I don't care what you try to make of this man. But this man is a man of God who loves his family, and he loves his other family. He has a whole bunch of children on this team, and he's trying to make, that he's trying to make into productive young black men. Miller says, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. Sanders has electrified this community, and we're noticing that he's doing for these young men Pardon me, we're noticing what he's doing for these young men. He really cares about mentoring. However, I have heard concerns for the young men about the fact that he's bringing them into Boulder, where the reality is different than its image. But I think it's exciting to see the community rallying around him and to have the nation looking at Colorado. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to have a launching point to explore what black life is in a place like Boulder and what black life is in a place like Colorado. What do you want to convey with the art of this exhibit? This is answered by Adderley Grant Lord. Our history is very heavy. It's kind of heart-wrenching. So I want the art to disturb you as well as to bring you joy. I want this exhibit to awaken in all of us a sense of joy and empathy. 
I want visitors to be fully human without the conditions of what this world handed us today. The world handed us a lot of divisiveness, and I want people to come and get to know themselves as they were born to know themselves, not as this universe created them to be, because with all the noise in our heads, I don't think we can hear ourselves. I want people to unify within their hearts. I don't want it to be superficial. It doesn't make any sense to come here and witness this and walk away with nothing. One question that is being posed here is, what type of ancestor you want to be? What kind of ancestor do you want to be, Adderley? Grant Lord says, For the next generation, for the ancestors in the making, I would like to be remembered as someone that brings light. I want to be the ancestor that I was intended to be without all the noise, the one that gives, listens, and is kind, the one that moves throughout this world as someone that sees you as a human being first, before I see you as anything else that would harm me. COVID has given me a perspective on life that I'm actually enjoying and loving. I'm being my full authentic self, and I don't really care what my mom, my husband, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my friends, my neighbor thinks or feels or understands about that. We all have that music, that light, that joy inside of us. Let it out, because this world needs it. What do you hope this exhibit communicates about your own experience of being black in Colorado? Grant Lord again. When I moved here in 2009, I had no intention of painting or being at the Museum of Boulder. But in 2020, something awakened in me, and now I am full of purpose. And so that my daughter could see her mother as someone she could talk about with her grandkids when I'm long gone. And she can see that I did this in a community that was less than 1% black, and that I am bringing my community together through my art. I want my daughter to go. My mom was fierce. She did this in a town where there was 1% of her here. And I don't want to stop with art. I want to have the community have a comedy club. I would like to have a society where I can go, I have choices. I have to make a decision on what I see in Boulder that kind of celebrates my culture. Do I go to this or do I go to that? There's nothing now. You have to go somewhere else to find our culture. I want it to be here because this is a beautiful place. But I know so many people who came and left because they couldn't connect. Next article comes from the Washington Post and was published on September 24th, written by Brittany Shamas. After Florida restricts black history, churches step up to teach it. Dateline Miami. They filed into the pews one after the other on a sweltering Wednesday night, clutching Bibles and notepads, ready to learn at church what they no longer trusted would be taught at school. Black History Matters proclaimed television screens facing the several dozen men and women settling in at Friendship Missionary Baptist Church, an institution in the predominantly black neighborhood of Liberty City. The ship had borne witness to many of the seminal events of the past century, shepherding its followers during Jim Crow and the heyday of the KKK, through the civil rights movement to the racial justice protests of recent years. Now, as a new school year started, the Reverend Gaston Smith was standing at the pulpit with the lesson on one of those chapters. After months of controversy over new directives governing classroom instruction in Florida, 
changes that critics said sanitized or even distorted the past. He and other black pastors across that state agreed their churches had no choice but to respond. They would teach black history themselves. Whenever there has been any kind of movement, particularly in the African-American community, it started in the house of God, said Smith, 57, a commanding presence with a resonant voice. He went on, We cannot be apathetic. We cannot sit back. We cannot be non-vocal. We have to stand our ground because the Bible says we have to speak up for those that cannot speak up for themselves. Their resolve has drawn a groundswell of support a nonprofit coalition of religious institutions, Faith in Florida, put together an 11-chapter toolkit to guide the churches and suggest books, articles, documentaries, and reports covering the black experience through what it calls the lens of truth. The chapters featuring content for all ages cover a lot of ground. From Africa to America, one is titled. Another highlights race, racism, and whiteness. Some 200 faith leaders quickly signed up to use it, representing African Methodist Episcopal, United Methodist, and other denominations, each committed to weave teachings on black history into their sermons or Sunday school classes or Bible study sessions. That way, they'd be reaching parents as well as children. The church's involvement harks back to the pivotal role many played in the struggle to end segregation and advance voting rights. There's always been that connection, said Lauren Lyons, a spokesperson for the coalition, and so we pretty much said that because of what's going on in the curriculum and what's going on in Florida right now, it's time that we took back that power. Inside the brightly lit sanctuary at Friendship Missionary Baptist Church, Smith turned to his Bible and began reading. The passage was from Acts 8.26 about an Ethiopian official converting to Christianity after reading scripture about Jesus. Quote, his justice was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Then Smith said he wanted to show a documentary about an injustice that has taken place right here in the state of Florida many years ago. He stepped aside as the video began playing and a woman named Lavon Bracy recounted being beaten when she became one of the first three black students at Gainesville High School in 1964. She said, I stayed home about a week and then I got up and I told Dad to take me back to school. I said, you know what, they're just going to have to kill me because I cannot let them win. In the crowd, churchgoers young and old watched quietly, hanging on to every word. For many black churches, discussing black history isn't new, but formalizing it through a teaching pledge, toolkit, and dedicated lessons is. The idea came from the coalition's executive director, the Reverend Rhonda Thomas. She had been dismayed by passage of the 2022 Stop Woke Act legislation, championed by Governor Ron DeSantis, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, that limits classroom discussion of race. This spring, as the state set about revising black history education standards to conform to that law, Thomas decided to take action. 
she would mobilize as many faith leaders as possible to teach, quote, raw and real African-American history from their pulpits. Her resolve was only strengthened when the new standards were released this summer with a line mandating middle schoolers be taught, quote, how slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Faith in Florida's website now greets visitors with a pop-up message imploring them to sign the pledge because black history is American history, it declares. In a sitting room at the gabled wood-paneled church in Opalaka that she and her husband have led for nearly three decades, New Generation Missionary Baptist Church, Thomas said she took particular issue with one of the provisions in last year's legislation, that instruction should be tailored so no student would feel guilt or psychological distress over past actions by members of the same race. If you want to look at who feels bad, I was born into this world as if it was designed for me to live feeling bad, she said with with an exasperated laugh. I don't think any lesson should be taught to make anyone feel angry, but if it's history, it's history, right? A Miami native, the 63-year-old Thomas could remember going to only one beach as a little girl, Virginia Key, because it was the only one where black people were allowed. Her high school class was the first to get to eat in the cafeteria. Her mother-in-law still has the card she had to show to be permitted onto Miami Beach to clean houses. Thomas sighed. We look at history as, oh, that happened way back then, she said, and no, 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 it's not that far. She had been preaching when a conversation with a voting rights activist changed her life. He said the black church had once been the heartbeat of the community, to the point that we became a threat, and that's why we were bombed. Then he asked, when have we last been a threat? The pastor thought about it and decided, I want to be a threat. She had forgotten, she said, the power of the black church, not any longer. While creating the toolkit, the members of a special force, pardon me, that's a special task force, had a few goals in mind. They wanted to cover a time span from before slavery to modern times, including the Middle Passage, white supremacy, and race riots the Black Panther Party, and what they called the criminal injustice system. We don't want to whitewash anything, said Task Force Manager Marlo Jones, a Faith in Florida organizer in Pasco County. We want to tell the truth. The response, since July, has been overwhelming. As of this month, more than 260 religious institutions have filled out a pledge to teach black history. And it isn't just black congregations responding. There also are synagogues, Catholic churches, and mosques. Nor is it only in-state houses of worship. Faith in Florida is now getting requests to build out an entire curriculum, something Thomas hopes to tackle in time for the second half of the school year. She said, I had no idea it was going to go this far. Her church was among the first to get started. Its initial foray was an early morning session taught by Thomas and her son on a Saturday in August. Her husband, the Reverend Ranser Thomas, amplified it during a Sunday service later that month in a sermon centered on leaning on faith in times of struggle 
He wove in the year-long bus boycott in the mid-1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, Bloody Sunday on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, a decade later, and the March on Washington in 1963. Such historic moments, he told congregants, must now be taught by people like you and I. Yes, there is a fight for wanting to remove history from the school, but who was the first teacher that you ever met, he asked. You will be reminded that the first teacher is at home. Seventh grader Terrence Williams listened from the pew where he sat with his older sister and uncle. After the service, he said he liked getting to know my history and what my ancestors did to help us gain freedom, even if some of it made him feel sad. Terrence said, They didn't do anything wrong, and they had to fight for us. As the video came to an end at Friendship Missionary Baptist, with Bracey returning to her high school decades after graduation to register students to vote, pardon me, register students to vote, Pastor Smith stepped back up to the pulpit. He said, That documentary is not there so you would get angry, but that documentary, documentary is there to remind the world, the nation, this state, that we will not go back where we've been. Raucous applause rang out in the high-ceilinged sanctuary. Smith turned again to Scripture, telling those gathered that, quote, Christ can connect with those that have dealt with injustice and that he is a God of inclusion. Near the front sat Mark Riley, a local high school tis- history teacher and leader of the church's youth ministry. He was frustrated by the limitations that Florida education officials had imposed and by the lack of a public pushback from his own superintendent. Riley said, It's American history. These kids have to know these things, and we can't pick and choose what we teach. He was heartened to see the church taking a stand, and as he listened to his pastor's pastor's message, he was already thinking of how he would teach black history during the youth Bible study he leads. The tone of Wednesday evening session was mostly triumphant, packed with call-and-response exchanges and upbeat music. That was intentional, Smith explained afterward. His congregants were feeling battered by all that was happening in the state, and he hoped to remind them of their importance. Not only to God, he told them, but we are important to this nation, important to this state. As the clock ticked toward 9 p.m., Smith led one more song. The band played the believers out. And as they readied to go back into the night, everyone was singing about gratitude. The next article comes from CBS News, which was posted on September 25th, written by Katrina Kincaid. On health, Boston College professor creates program to help black teens with autism improve mental health. Dateline Newton. A Boston College professor is developing a virtual program to help black youth with autism talk about their mental health. The goal of this is, first off, direct exposure to conversations about depression. We lower stigma. The more you talk about it, the less stigmatizing it is, Professor Ed D. Williams told WBZ-TV. Williams grew up with an older brother on the spectrum and dedicated his educational career to studying race, the disorder, and mental health. 
He said when he first started there wasn't a lot of research. I started doing Google Scholar searches, PubMed searches, trying to get an understanding of what was out there with black youth and autism, and it's very sad to say there's very little, he explained. He wanted to know what the depression rates for black autistic youth looked like. Given there's communication deficits, they experience bullying, higher incarceration rates, and higher suicide rates, he said. So he researched even further. Nothing, not a single article that specifically examined depression among black autistic youth, he said. But Williams knew there had to be something there. When you take the experience of being autistic, being disabled, and then you compound that with being black and discrimination and racism and these different things that we know impact black youth, there has to be something there, he told WBZ. He took on the research himself and found that there was something there and decided something should be done about it. He is collaborating with Symerson, a company that's produced similar programs, virtual role-playing conversation trained for autistic people that Williams has worked on with his mentors. What I'm hoping is that this tool, first of all, is it's feasible. As I have black autistic youth, I have their caregivers and families testing it. They say, yes, this makes sense. This will help us. The way it works is you choose the symptom you're feeling and practice telling an actor who's playing a special education teacher with pre-recorded responses about them. There are different responses. Some are better than others. The program works with you in real time on finding the best ones until you feel confident telling someone in real life. Williams explained, the tool teaches effective communication skills. Here's the best way, based on what we know from research, to get someone's attention. Here's a proper way to explain your symptoms. They're still in the testing phase with the program. He has put the script in the program and is actively getting feedback. He chose a special education teacher as the character because his research showed that young black boys tend to seek out teachers who are supportive to express what's going on in their lives. Teachers are often the first line of defense. They'll say, I go to my teacher when I'm sad because I see them every day. I know them. I'm comfortable with them, he said. Williams said from his research, symptoms of depression in black youth can look different than other races. So they've based the program on understanding those symptoms. His goal is, if youth can learn the language to talk about mental health, then they'll be able to communicate better about it. He is working with the actor who will play the special education teacher this month and hoping to do a feasibility study for the program by the end of the year. Next article comes from the New York Times Art, pardon me, Arts Edition, and this was published September 26th, written by Jennifer Schusler. Smithsonian acquires major collection about enslaved poet. The National Museum of African American History and Culture has purchased a trove relating to Phyllis Wheatley, the first, Afri me, the first American of African descent to publish a book. In September 1773, Phyllis Wheatley, a young enslaved woman from Boston, boarded a ship home from London where she had been, pardon me, where she had gone to promote her forthcoming book of poems, the first ever published by an American of African descent. It was not the first time Wheatley had sailed to Boston. 
Twelve years earlier, she had arrived from Africa as a child captive and was sold to a prominent family, the Wheatleys, who named her after the slave ship. But on this second voyage, Phyllis, now a literary celebrity, picked up a pen and wrote Ocean, a seventy-line ode to pardon me, a seventy-line ode full of dreaming, wonder, and longing for freedom. Ocean went unpublished and was seemingly lost until 1998, when the manuscript surfaced at an auction. Now it has been acquired by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture as part of what the museum says will be the largest collection of Wheatley material in public hands. The 30-item collection includes newspapers and books from her lifetime that contain poems by Wheatley and references to her, as well as material documenting her literary afterlife. Kevin Young, the museum's director, called the Ocean Manuscript one of the few surviving Wheatley poems written in her own hand. He called it stunning. But what really blows me away, he said, was seeing it alongside an issue of the Boston Evening Post that noted her return from London. You're seeing her handwriting and seeing her write in this language she had fairly recently learned and had become a champion of, he said, and here she is in this moment where she has traversed the ocean, which she had initially done in a horrible way, but was doing now as a celebrated poet. I've often thought of that moment and what it might have been like for her. In the poem, Young said, Wheatley explores the ocean as, quote, a space of genius for creativity and the kind of freedom she's found. But while looking at the newspaper report of her arrival, not long before the Boston Tea Party, he noticed something else, an advertisement for the return of a runaway slave about Wheatley's age named Nancy. Young said, This is all the contradictions of this American moment. Wheatley is already ex- Pardon me, Wheatley is already represented in the museum's core exhibit, where a statue of her stands in front of a wall inscribed with words from the Declaration of Independence, her quill poised as if to underline or edit the paradox of liberty alongside slavery. Nearby is a copy of her 1773 book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, with its famous frontispiece portrait attributed to Scipio Moorhead, an enslaved black artist. We tend to think of Wheatley, who corresponded with George Washington, met Benjamin Franklin, and drew scornful attention from Thomas Jefferson as a singular figure, but she was part of this community of black artists, including among the enslaved, said Young. Shortly after her book was published in September, December 1773, Wheatley was manumitted. In 1778, she married John Peters, a free black grocer, and began planning a second book which never appeared. Scholars believe she had three children who did not survive infancy. She died impoverished in 1784. The museum's acquisition, mostly made through the dealer James Cummins, includes six items dating to Wheatley's lifetime, including Ocean, but there are also items that show her growing power as a symbol, like a 1930 pamphlet published by the Phyllis Wheatley Club of Waycross, Georgia, part of a network of women's women's clubs, which were named after her. 
During the black arts movement of the 1960s, Wheatley was disdained by some black male intellectuals who dismissed her as an early Boston Aunt Jemima. As one put it, her poem on being brought from Africa to America, with its seemingly sycophantic, sycophantic gratitude, has been called perhaps the most reviled poem in American literature. But in recent decades, Wheatley has inspired black poets like Nikki Giovanni, Honoré Fanoni Jeffers, Amanda, Gorm- Amanda Gorman, pardon me, and Young, who have found subversive currents in her decorous neoclassical verse. Wheatley is also a touchstone in the museum's current Afrofuturism show. The show on view until August 2024 hopscotches across time from the polymath inventor Benjamin Banneker's 1970, pardon me, 1793 almanac to Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther costume. Wheatley, said Young, was writing at a time when poetry was not about personal feelings, but public events, which can make her work hard to connect with. But time-traveling artifacts like those in the new collection can help. He said, we can't get close to her, except that here you have a poem written in her hand. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.